Good morning. This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. We're here to consider four important nominees for critical positions. Elizabeth Bagley to be ambassador to Brazil, Maria Ponte to be ambassador to Panama, Dr. Frank Mora to be permanent representative to the Organization of American States, and Michelle Kwan to be ambassador to Belize. I want to congratulate each of the four of you on these nominations. Thanks for your willingness to serve. Thanks to family and friends who will also bear the burdens of service. Uh, my distinguished colleague, Senator Markey, will introduce Ambassador Bagley. Uh, he is a member of this committee and is not here yet. And so I think what I'll do is I'll introduce the other three members of the panel and cross my fingers that just as I finish, Senator Markey will walk in the door. Um, Senator, uh, so we'll begin with Marie Carmen Aponte. She is a former ambassador to El Salvador and the acting assistant secretary of state for Western Hemisphere Affairs. She served on the board of directors of Oriental Financial Group in San Juan, Puerto Rico, and is executive director of the Puerto Rico Federal Affairs uh, Administration at the Commonwealth Federal Agency in Washington, D.C. Welcome, Ambassador Aponte. She currently works as a consultant in Washington, D.C., has previously worked as a consultant and also a law practitioner in both New York and Washington. She earned a B.A. at Rosemont College in Pennsylvania, a master's degree at Villanova University, and a J.D. at Temple University Law School. Welcome. Dr. Francisco Mora is the Professor of Politics and International Relations and a Senior Researcher at the Jack D. Gordon Institute for Public Policy at Florida International University. Uh, earlier in his career, he was the Director of the Kimberly Green Latin American and Caribbean Center at FIU's Green School of International and Public Affairs. Dr. Mora served as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Defense for the Western Hemisphere. He's held several teaching positions, including professional, uh, Professor of National Security Strategy in Latin American Studies at the National War College, at the National Defense University. He earned his BA in International Affairs at George Washington, an MA in Inter-American Studies, and PhD in International Affairs from the University of Miami. Welcome. Michelle Kwan has had a distinguished career in public service, diplomacy, and sports. She's the most decorated figure skater in U.S. history, having won 43 championships, including five world championships, nine national titles, and two Olympic medals. In addition to that successful career, Ms. Kwan has excelled in foreign affairs. She became the first public diplomacy envoy in 2006, and for a decade traveled extensively on behalf of the Department of State to engage youth around the world on social and educational issues. She earned a BA from the University of Denver with a focus on international relations, an MA from Tuft, Tufts University's Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, and then became a senior advisor at the Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs at the U.S. Department of State. Uh, Senator Markey is not yet here. I think what I'll do, uh, Senator Portman, is I'll go ahead and provide my opening remarks and have you provide your opening remarks. And we hope at the last sentence of your opening remarks, Senator Markey will walk in the room ready to do introduction, and then we'll turn to the witnesses for their opening statements. So I now turn it to my uh, ranking member for the day, Senator Portman. Great. Thank you very much. Actually, let me make my opening remarks first. How about that? Andale. We decided <laughs> Andale. Really to Andale, speak as said. In, in three languages. Yeah, we, we're going to speak in Portuguese, Spanish, and English today so, because of the nations that you are here. Yes to serve. Congratulations on all the nominations. Representing the U.S. and the American people abroad is an honor and a privilege. I know you know that from your previous experience serving the American people. And with your prof impressive professional backgrounds, you'll serve with distinction. I'm pleased to chair this nomination for four very critical nations in the Western Hemisphere, Brazil, Panama, 
police and not a uh, nation, but an organization, the Organization of American States. The hearing is timely. In fact, it couldn't be more timely. We approach the ninth summit of the Americas next month in Los Angeles. The US will host it for the first time in more than 30 years. And we confront a wide range of challenges, but also opportunities in the Western Hemisphere. Having our best team in the field is critical to advancing US interests with our neighbors. Brazil is Latin America's largest country with over 212 million people and will hold presidential elections this November. Having an ambassador in place to lead our efforts in strengthening the bilateral relationship on trade, environment, human rights, and security issues with Latin America's largest democracy will be critical. What Panama lacks in physical size, it makes up in geostrategic importance as a vital global trade hub connecting the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans. Panama is an important partner on trade, migration, counter-narcotics, and has also sought U.S. support for the Alliance for Development and Democracy. This alliance, together with Costa Rica and the Dominican Republic, is a welcome and important development. I hope the Biden administration will continue its support of the alliance. The OAS is a critical institution for our region in promoting democracy, human rights, economic and social development, anti-corruption, transparency, and regional security cooperation. In March, I joined a bipartisan group of my colleagues from this committee and sent a letter to Secretary Blinken to support the efforts to revoke Russia's permanent observer status at the OAS. And I applaud the State Department for taking that step. The U.S. remains the largest contributor to the OAS, and having a confirmed permanent representative will advance our leadership in this important institution. Finally, Belize, with which the United States has a close relationship in part due to a strong Belizean community in the United States, estimated at more than 85,000. A friendly relationship, though, does not mask some of the real challenges that the people of Belize have faced over the past several years, an economic downturn due to COVID, ensuing high levels of public debt, and like most nations in the region, the flow of migrants through the country. We can only help Belize effectively address these challenges with a confirmed ambassador in place. The United States has not had a confirmed ambassador in Belize for five years. The committee looks forward to hearing from each of you today, and I look forward to supporting your nominations. With that, I now I'll give it back to Senator Portman and ask him to make his opening statement. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thanks to all four of you for your willingness to step up and, and serve our country in, in capacities that you, some of you have done before. Um, this is an important opportunity for us to hear from you. I have uh, been asked to do this at the request of Tim Kaine, and I never say no to Tim Kaine. So uh, we're happy to have this hearing and then hopefully move you along quickly to the, to the floor of the Senate um, and for, um, you know, getting you in place in these countries who are, are in, in need of someone badly. Brazil, as we talked about Ambassador Bagley in our conversation, has so much potential and so much untapped potential. Uh, so that will be an interesting opportunity for you, having served in Portuguese. I'm sure your Portuguese is, is uh, up, to the, up to the task. Uh, COVID-19 has hit Brazil so hard and reversed a lot of the economic gains that, that they had made. It will be having elections, as you know, on October 2nd. My understanding is this will be intensely contested and I'd like to hear what your priorities would be as Ambassador Brazil have confirmed. Uh, we have talked about some issues that relate to work in this committee, including the wildlife trafficking legislation we're trying to get passed and how it uh, would be uh, effective in Brazil. And we'd love to hear uh, more from you about that today. Ambassador Aponte, after 40 years, um, 
Panama is a strong example of a country that has thrown off its authoritarian past and moved forward with democracy uh, in an impressive way, but they still struggle on a number of fronts, including controlling corruption. And I hope that we can talk to you a little about that. In June 2019, the Financial Action Task Force added Panama to its gray list of countries with weak anti-money laundering provisions, as an example. Hopefully, you can tell us how you would help uh, with regard to that issue. Dr. Mora, in March, Senator Kane and I signed a letter to Secretary Blinken urging him to work with like-minded countries to strip Russia of its observer status at the OAS. I was pleased to see uh, the OAS finally take this step last month. Uh, what I said earlier, when Senator Kane says something, people tend to do it, uh, at least in this, in this example. Um, but uh, that's very positive. Um, I think it's precisely the kind of diplomatic isolation that must be occurring globally right now if we have any chance of getting Russia to pull back uh, on its brutal assault on Ukraine and withdraw its forces from their sovereign territory. I would say Russia is not the only country of concern uh, for me uh, with regard to the OAS. For example, I'm curious as to how you think the OAS should address human rights challenges in Cuba, democratic backsliding, of course, in Nicaragua, also what's going on in Venezuela, uh, and what you would do to support uh, President Guaido's uh, efforts in Venezuela. Finally, Ms. Kwan, I'm eager to hear about your plans and priorities as ambassador to Belize. What a beautiful country and strong ties to the United States, but also a country that has uh, challenges, obviously, on the economic front, uh, COVID and tourism uh, challenges still. Um, but uh, it also is a country, again, that, that, that we uh, care a lot about and are strong allies of ours. One of my concerns about Belize today is what I hear about the traffickers. The, uh, the drug cartels now using Belize uh, as a stopping point, and uh, that has not been, in my understanding, uh, a, a big issue in the past, but it is now. We would like to hear from you about that and what we should be doing. Um, also, I think it's interesting that Brazil, I'm sorry, Belize is one of the few countries um, in the hemisphere that still recognizes Taiwan. Uh, I was just in Taiwan recently, and they very much appreciate that um, and want to talk to you a little about that. Uh, I'm sure Belize is under a lot of pressure from the Chinese to change its allegiance. And uh, what can we do to support Belize as they support our allies in Taiwan would be a, a question I would ask today. So again, thank you all four for being here. For three of you, uh, a rich uh, tradition of public service for Ms. Kwan. You've been serving in your own way, representing the sport and, uh, and representing us in at the Special Olympics and other important ways to serve. So we're, again, pleased that all four of you have agreed to step up and serve in these new capacities. Thank you, Senator Portman. He uh, is too kind when he says he agreed to co-chair this because I asked him. He also has a real interest in the Americas. We took a bipartisan delegation of senators to Mexico, Guatemala, Colombia, Ecuador about 10 months ago that was very valuable. So thank you, Senator Portman. And the impeccable timing of our colleague, Senator Markey, who is a friend and a colleague and a valued member of the committee. Senator Markey, you're up to introduce Ambassador Bagley. Thank you, thank you very much. And
son Connor, son-in-law Ben, sister Ellen, her, her daughter Vaughn couldn't be here in person today because she is at the White House right now participating in the First Lady's Youth Mental Health Action Forum carrying on the tradition of public service that her mother has dedicated her career to. Some children that Vaughn shares the pride with high school here today. And looking down proudly, we have no doubt is Elizabeth's mother, Rosemary, and her father, John, Judge John's father, who would have turned 100 years old today. Uh, and I know how proud uh, is my family. And so, uh, dedication to public service is really a family affair for that in the end. Elizabeth's diplomatic career stands four different administrations and has participated in some of the most significant diplomatic milestones of the last century. She served as congressional liaison to the Panama Canal Treaties. She backstopped senior officials negotiating the Camp David Accords, which set the framework for an enduring peace between Israel and Egypt. And she was on the U.S. delegation to the Conference on Security and Cooperation in Europe at a time that the United States and much of Europe was united against the Soviet Union's invasion of a sovereign country Afghanistan. The role of managing a U.S. mission in a Portuguese-speaking country is not new to Elizabeth. The Senate confirmed Elizabeth unanimously to serve as ambassador to our NATO ally, Portugal, in 1994, the first woman to ever fill that role. In Elizabeth, the men and women of the Foreign Service, as well as locally employed staff in Portugal, had a committed advocate. Uh, she established a daycare service at the embassy, one that has seen hundreds of children come through its doors ever since. Upon her return to Washington, former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright entrusted Elizabeth to stand up the Office of Media Acquisition to help the newly independent Balkan states establish uh, free media, a cornerstone of any democracy. And years later, Elizabeth returned to Foggy Bottom to serve in a number of other key senior roles, including as special representative for global partnerships and as our representative to the United Nations General Assembly, a position for which she was unanimously confirmed again by the Senate. Our bilateral relationship with Brazil will require a forceful spokesperson in Brasilia, particularly as the country prepares for contentious presidential elections in October. Elizabeth's background in public diplomacy and journalism, along with her proven an effective diplomatic skill, give her an undeniable voice. We need that voice to put climate diplomacy at the forefront and win stronger commitments from Brazil to protect the Amazon rainforest, the lungs of the world, from deforestation. And we will need to continue to help the country recover from the COVID-19 pandemic and its compounding economic effects. And Elizabeth's... Uh, uh, Perfeito command of Portuguese means that she will enter the role with a voice that all of her colleagues will understand. Mr. Chairman, Elizabeth's experience and unmatched experience makes her a tremendous pick, a perfect pick to serve as our ambassador uh, to South America's most populous country and one of the world's most powerful economies. I urge swift confirmation for my friend Elizabeth Bagley uh, she will serve our country very well in this time 
of great need for diplomatic envoys around the world. I thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Markey. And we'll now have opening statements of the nominees, and we'll begin with Ambassador Bagley, then Ambassador Aponte, Dr. Mora, and Ms. Kwan. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Senator Markey, for those uh, laudatory remarks. <laughs> it was very, very nice of you. Uh, we go back, I can't tell you how many years, probably 40 years, um, but uh, appreciate all you've done, especially on, on the subject of climate change. And if confirmed, that would certainly be one of my top priorities. So I thank you for that. Uh, Mr. Chairman, ranking member, members of the committee, it is my distinct honor to appear before you today as the nominee to serve as a U.S. Ambassador to the Federative Republic of Brazil. I am deeply grateful that President Biden and Secretary Blinken placed their trust in me to take on this important role. I want to thank my daughter Vaughn, who, as uh, Senator Markey said, is at the White House as we speak, uh, her husband, Ben, who is here, my son, Connor, for their love and unwavering support. My sister, Ellen, the youngest of uh, the uh, eight children. I'm number two. She's number eight. She's also here with me. Uh, 28 years ago, in June of 1994, I came before this committee as President Clinton's nominee to be U.S. Ambassador to Portugal and it was the highest privilege of my life to represent my country there. My children were then four years old and 10 months old, so we've all come a long way since then, and I know my beloved husband and parents are smiling down from above. As uh, Senator Markey said, today would have marked the 100th birthday of my father, who, with my mother, taught me and my seven brothers and sisters that to whom much is given, much is expected, as they themselves led a life of purpose. My father is a lawyer and a judge for 50 years, and my mother is a social worker. If given the opportunity, serving as a U.S. ambassador to Brazil would be the capstone of my career in public service, diplomacy, and law, which spans over four decades. I have learned from and advised Secretaries of State John Kerry Hillary Clinton, and the late Madeleine Albright over more than 20 years of service to the Department of State. I was deeply honored to serve as a U.S. Ambassador to Portugal from 1994 to 1997, a period in which we made great strides in our bilateral relationship as well as with NATO. I'm cognizant of the importance of our deep and historic relationship with Brazil which has the largest population, economy, territory, and military in Latin America. This year marks the 200th anniversary of Brazil's independence and of the United States becoming the first country to recognize Brazil. Today, we are building on our long history of cooperation to take on shared challenges and priorities. A country with strong democratic institutions, an open economy, and a regional and multilateral leadership role, Brazil is a strategic partner, and if confirmed, I plan to build on that partnership to further enhance our bilateral ties. If confirmed, my first priority would be to ensure the con continued safety and security 
of the approximately 200,000 U.S. citizens who reside in or travel to Brazil each year. I would also work to protect the interests of the more than 1,400 American and Brazilian professionals who comprise the U.S. mission in Brazil. Our relationship with Brazil is grounded in shared commitments to democracy and human rights, economic prosperity, security, and the rule of law. The United States engages Brazil through the UN Security Council, the UN Human Rights Council, and many regular bilateral dialogues on a full range of issues highlighted by the US-Brazil high-level dialogue held in Brasilia on April 25th and co-chaired by Undersecretaries of State Newland and Fernandes. If confirmed, I will work to further strengthen this wide-ranging dialogue. I also will affirm our confidence in Brazil's democratic institutions and electoral system and the importance of maintaining public trust in that system ahead of Brazil's October national elections. Our support for Brazil as it combats threats from transnational criminal organizations should be based on a foundation of respect for human rights for all Brazilians. I will reinforce the U.S. commitment to strengthening democracy, human rights, and the rule of law in Brazil and throughout the hemisphere. Our bilateral trade has rebounded from the pandemic, demonstrating the enormous potential of our commercial relationship. Brazil represents a vital market for a range of U.S. industries. We are Brazil's largest foreign investor and its second largest trading partner. And if confirmed, I intend to broaden these economic ties and expand our bilateral trade. The steps Brazil has taken to join and align with the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development signal its commitment to sustainable economic growth and financial stability. Brazil is home to 30% of the world's tropical rainforests, including 60% of the Amazon, the largest and most biodiverse tropical rainforest in the world, and as Senator Markey said, the lungs of the world. If confirmed, one of my top priorities will be to encourage efforts to increase climate ambition, dramatically reduce deforestation, protect forest defenders, and prosecute environmental crimes and related acts of violence. Mr. Chairman, uh, ranking member, committee members, if I am confirmed, it would be my honor to represent the people of the United States of America to the government and people of Brazil. I would look forward to collaborating with this committee and with your professional staff to further U.S. interests in Brazil. I thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today, and I welcome your questions. Thank you. Thank you, Ambassador Bagley. Ambassador Aponte. Good morning, Mr. Chairman and ranking members. I am all members of the committee. I am accompanied this morning by my younger and only sister, who has been a bedrock of my support, Tere, and also with me, I am deeply honored to have Felix Rodriguez, who is an icon in the Cuban-American community, not only because of his role in capturing Che Guevara, but also because of his steadfast support for democracy throughout the continent. So I'm very pleased to have him both with me. 
I also feel honored and grateful for the trust and confidence President Biden and Secretary Blinken placed in me by nominating me to serve as United States Ambassador to the Republic of Panama. It is an honor to appear before you for the second time after having served as Ambassador to El Salvador and Acting Assistant Secretary of State for the Western Hemisphere. I look forward to discussing my view of the bilateral relationship and how I will make it even more productive and dynamic if confirmed as Ambassador. The United States and Panama have a long history of partnership and collaboration to advance mutual goals. We remain Panama's largest trade partner and its number one source of foreign direct investment. Panama's location and role in global trade due to the Panama Canal makes its success important to both U.S. prosperity and national security. Traffic to or from the United States represents nearly 70% of all canal transits. Panama's strategic location along major land and sea transit routes makes it critical in the interdiction of illicit drugs destined for the United States and a vital partner in addressing irregular migration. As a carbon negative country, Panama has the potential to serve as an environmental model, not only for the region, but also for the world. While Panama and the United States have ample historical, cultural, and economic ties, challenges exist in the bilateral relationship. Each year, thousands of migrants take a perilous journey through the Darien Gap, many passing through Panama on their way to the United States. We must find more ways to work together to manage migration, provide protection, and give potential regular migrants incentives to remain in their home country. We must also continue to promote democratic governance and rule of law. Corruption is a serious challenge in Panama has a corrosive effect on many layers of the state. We must not allow it to progress further. The government efforts to enforce recent anti-money laundering reforms and to correct efficiencies acquired for Panama's removal from the Financial Action Task Force's greatest will determine Panama's financial stability and attractiveness to investors. Panama also suffers from organized criminal activity, which threatens to undermine democratic institutions and economic prosperity. If confirmed, I will use my position as ambassador to strengthen our relationship with Panama and build the security and prosperity of the entire region. This includes our engagement with Panamanian government ministries, civil society, and the private sector to showcase our strong partnership and hedge against problematic PRC influence and activities. We need a stable, strong, and secure Panama, and Panama needs the United States as a friend, ally, and partner. Effective implementation of U.S. foreign policy in Panama requires a cohesive, diligent, and effective whole of U.S. government team. And we have an extraordinary interagency embassy team in Panama. The mission's efforts center on the strategic work of ensuring the United States remains a valued partner, collaboratively managing migration through the Darien and the battle against corruption, which threatens the foundations of institutional democracy. Just as I did in El Salvador as U.S. Ambassador there, I want to empower and listen to the embassy team to make the bilateral relationship stronger, more effective, and more dynamic. 
If confirmed, I will prioritize strengthening diversity and inclusion. I commit to ensuring our workplace remains a safe, fair, and just space for all. The challenges we face now more than ever call for a strong, smart, and vibrant diplomacy. Panama can and should serve as a key player in confronting Central America's challenges. We will strengthen bilateral ties by reaching out to the complete spectrum of Panamanian society, not just to government leaders and the country's elite, but to community leaders, minority and women's groups, youth, and all facets of civil society. We're going to do this with Panama hand in hand so that together we can move forward stronger. If confirmed, I will lead our embassy team in Panama City with pride and dedication and look forward to keeping you appraised of our progress. I will prioritize protecting U.S. citizens in Panama while championing the interest of the United States in cooperation with our Panamanian friends. Thank you for the opportunity to appear before you, and I look forward to answering your questions. Thank you. Thank you, Ambassador Aponte. Dr. Mora. Thank you, Chairman Kane, Ranking Member Portman, and members of the committee. I'm honored to appear before you today as President Biden's nominee to be the United States Permanent Representative to the Organization of American States. I'm deeply grateful to President Biden and Secretary Blinken for the support and confidence they have placed in me. I'd like to begin by expressing my gratitude to members of my family. My wife, Yvette, of 28 years, and children, Daniela and Frankie, without whose love and constant support, I very much likely not be here today. And my wife, Yvette, and daughter, Daniela, join me here today. To my parents watching from home, Nivardo and Mirka, who recently celebrated their 60th wedding anniversary, thank you for your unwavering love <clears throat> and support for the many sacrifices you made after fleeing from communist Cuba, so that my brother Jorge and I could have the opportunity to fulfill our dreams and give back to a country that so generously provided for our family. <clears throat> the countries of the Western Hemisphere are facing unprecedented challenges, as this committee knows. The COVID-19 pandemic has wrought incalculable human and economic costs. The climate crisis threatens the health and well-being of the people of the Americas. Inequity, corruption, poor governance, public security challenges, irregular migration, democratic backsliding, are limiting individuals' ability to build better futures in the region. The OAS, I believe, provides the only effective regional form for coordinating multilaterally on issues that concern our hemisphere. From the climate crisis to supporting marginalized and vulnerable communities and championing democracy and human rights, the OAS can implement solutions more efficiently and effectively with regional political buy-in. The participation of the United States at the OAS reinforces our commitment to multilateralism as the most appropriate vehicle to address our shared governance and development challenges, to promote regional economic prosperity, to ensure the safety and security of our peoples, and to hold countries accountable for their treatment of citizens. The answer to so many of these challenges involves improving government's ability to effectively provide for their people. I believe democracy is the best system for providing that governance, and if confirmed, I am committed to vigorously promoting democracy and human rights at the OAS, 
the premier regional forum to advocate for our cherished shared values. As we all know, democratic institutions and civil liberties are under attack throughout the hemisphere. We have witnessed backsliding in many countries and are deeply concerned about the systemic repression and lack of free and fair elections in Nicaragua and Venezuela. In Cuba, the Cuban regime continues to deny its citizens even basic freedoms, as we saw during the July 11th and November 15, 2021 protest, and the subsequent mass imprisonment of dissidents, human rights activists, and more recently, children for insisting on the right to live in freedom. The OS must respond in a concerted way to these massive abuses of human dignity. If confirmed, you can be sure that I will forcefully highlight the struggle of Cubans on the island in their fight for freedom and human rights. The Inter-American Democratic Charter remains a critical document at the OAS for the defense of democracy in the Americas. If confirmed, I will continue to be a strong advocate for the values and principles enshrined in this and in other guiding documents and institutions, such as the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, which I will strongly support. One of my priorities as U.S. Ambassador, if confirmed, will be to continue to advocate for OAS reform consistent with the OAS Revitalization and Reform Act of 2013. It is essential this be a shared priority for each member state and the OAS leadership, as it is in our collective interest to ensure a strong OAS remains focused on its core competencies. I also want to assure that we will remain committed to advancing the objectives of the OAS Legislative Act uh, of 2020. If confirmed, I also will work to support the United States leadership of the Ninth Summit of the Americas and look forward to working with the OAS to implement our leaders' commitment at the summit that will be held in June in Los Angeles. In closing, I, I would like to underscore the critical importance of the OAS Permanent Council suspending Russia's permanent observer status over its war in Ukraine and gross violations of human rights. It has sent an important message from this hemisphere of our solidarity with the people of Ukraine. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Portman, and members of the committee, thank you for giving me the opportunity to appear before you today. If confirmed, I very much look forward to working closely with you and other members of the Congress to advance U.S. interests. I welcome your comments and look forward to answering your questions. Thank you. Dr. Mora, thank you very much. Finally, Ms. Kwan, welcome. Thank you so much. Mr. Chairman, Mr. Ranking Member, and distinguished members of the committee, it is an honor to be here today as President Biden's nominee as the U.S. Ambassador to Belize. I want to thank President Biden for placing such trust in me, and I would like to thank my friends, my family, and my colleagues for all their support. I want to give a special thank you to my parents, Danny and Estella Kwan, for sacrificing so much for me. Throughout my life, I have worn many different hats, uh, and I believe there is no higher honor than serving our country. 
As an athlete, I was proud to win five world championships and two Olympic medals while representing the United States. I also served as a Special Olympics board member, an author, and a diplomat, having worked as a senior advisor and public diplomacy envoy with the Department of State. Service has always been a calling, and if confirmed, it will continue to be what guides me as I serve our country as the U.S. Ambassador to Belize. The United States and Belize share strong bilateral relations. Over one million tourists from the United States visit Belize annually, and approximately 30,000 U.S. citizens live in Belize, and more than 85,000 Belizeans live in the United States. The roots of both our government and people-to-people -people ties run deep. Belize is a vibrant democracy with a commitment to upholding shared democratic values. Its geostrategically important position bridges Central America and the Caribbean. Belize has challenges exacerbated by the ongoing pandemic. The economy shrank by about 16% in 2020, particularly hitting the tourism sector, Belize's lifeblood. The Belizean government works to manage to, uh, the spread of COVID-19 effectively, and it has contained the spread of the virus better than most countries. Still, Belize has felt its crippling effects. We are working together to tackle this and other challenges. The United States has donated 228,150 doses of vaccine to Belize, provided $300,000 in COVID-19 assistance, and has assisted Belize with more than $4 million worth of COVID mitigation projects, together with Baylor University. Belize joined the United States on May 12th in co-hosting the second global COVID-19 summit as the CARICOM chair, demonstrating the government of Belize's success in managing the COVID-19 pandemic. And here's another example of working together. In December 2021, the Millennium Challenge Corporation selected Belize to develop a five-year compact, a partnership that could inject hundreds of millions of dollars to improve infrastructure reduce poverty, and create a brighter future for all Belizeans. In November 2021, the U.S. International Developed Finance Corporation provided $610 million in political risk insurance in support an innovative debt conversion that not only cut Belize's sovereign debt burden in half, but also supported projects to protect 30% of its ocean through a blue bond financial deal. Belize and the United States enjoy a strong partnership on security cooperation, and Belize cooperates closely with the United States in efforts to deter, disrupt narcotics and human trafficking and other illicit activities by transnational criminal organizations. The United States assists Belize through programs to improve border security, professionalize police, and strengthen the rule of law. If confirmed, I will work to continue and expand these efforts for the benefit of Belizean citizens and the many U.S. citizens who reside in and visit Belize. Building upon shared regional efforts to address migration, I will work to strengthen cooperation with Belize on humane migration management and protection. While we work with Belize to confront the challenges the country faces, we should also seize opportunities to advance our mutual interests Belize ties with Taiwan are an example. 
If confirmed, I will continue to encourage strong ties to Taiwan, a significant partner that shares our democratic values. The United States and Belize also have mutual interest in bolstering its energy sector, which presents opportunities for U.S. investment that can benefit both our countries. With the average age of Belizeans as 25 years, we must work together to create new learning and economic opportunities. I plan to lean on my international experience to encourage robust educational, sporting, and other exchanges between the United States and Belize to enhance the bilateral relationship on all levels. In conclusion, Mr. Chairman, Mr. Ranking Member, members of the committee, if confirmed, I will take my role as the ambassador with the same work ethic, persistence, and determination I have used to achieve results for my country. I will advance U.S. interests and promote American democratic values. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I will be a strong champion of service to others while working to advance this important bilateral relationship. Thank you for the opportunity to appear here today. If confirmed, I look forward to working closely with this committee. And I look forward to answering your questions. Ms. Kwan, thank you very much. Before we begin questions, I have housekeeping matters. These are questions that we ask of all nominees, and I would ask them to you uh, to, to gauge your responsiveness as potential executive branch employees to congressional oversight. And I would ask that each of you just provide a yes or no answer to these questions first. Do you agree to appear before this committee and make officials from your office available to the committee and designated staff when invited? Yes. 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 Do you commit to keep this committee fully and currently informed about the activities under your purview? Yes. 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 Do you commit to engaging in meaningful consultation while policies are being developed and not just providing notification after the fact? Yes. 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 Finally, do you commit to promptly responding to requests for briefing and information requested by the committee and its designated staff? Yes. 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 Thank you for those answers. Um, we'll now proceed with questions, and the, uh, the norm on this committee is we proceed and alternate between Democrats and Republicans in order of seniority, beginning with everyone who was here at the gavel, either in person or by WebEx. And then we represent more later, we recognize more later arrivals later in the order. I'm going to make two alterations to the norm that will not disadvantage any of my colleagues who want to ask questions. I'm going to, I'm going to save my questions for the end since I'm going to be here the entire hearing. And I'm going to recognize Senator Menendez, the chair of the committee, when he arrives, when it's next time for a Democrat to question. So with that, I'll ask Senator Portman to begin. Great. Thank you, Chairman. And I thought your answers to those questions that the Chairman posed were very succinct. Yes, no. Thank you. Um, I'm not going to ask you to be quite that succinct in response to these, but try to be succinct because I'm going to attempt in five minutes to get to everybody. Uh, first, Ambassador Bagley, you know, I talked about the Wildlife Trafficking Act, and Brazil has been designated as a focus country by U.S. government's Presidential Task Force on Trafficking. As you know, we have legislation to try to make that permanent. Uh, Senator Coons and I, before this committee, in fact, will you commit to working with this Presidential Task Force to ensure we have an effective, effective strategic plan with Brazil and help facilitate U.S. efforts? In Brazil to address the illegal wildlife trade. Absolutely, Senator, and thank you for um, all your work and all your efforts on that, and also on the tropical rainforest bill that you authored and continue to 
um, sponsor. I believe they've uh, you've succeeded in uh, having more um, funding for that as well, renewal. So absolutely, I will do that. It is, wildlife trafficking is a huge problem in the Amazon especially. I think with your uh, commitment to this, uh, Brazil could be a, a, a model country. And with regard to the Tropical so. Forest Conservation Act, which is a debt for nature swap, we have done deals with Brazil under that legislation. We cannot any longer because they don't have any other concessional debt from the United States. However, would you work with us to look at other debt, including IMF debt? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I think that, that could be an interesting opportunity, too, to make Brazil a model country on uh, preserving tropical forests. Uh, you and I have talked about Russia and uh, its presence in Brazil. We appreciated Brazil voting with us at the UN to condemn Russia's assault on Ukraine. They do still get a lot of stuff from Russia, including fertilizer. Will you work with Brazil to try to be even tougher with regard to sanctions on Russia? Uh, yes, absolutely. In fact, there we are working with them on the fertilizer issue. And there's a, um, at the UN, there's a, a conference today that's headed by um, Secretary Blinken on um, food security. And the agriculture minister of Brazil is attending. So they're already working, and I will continue. Great. Thank you. Ambassador Aponte, one of the concerns I have about Panama is the increasing presence of China. I noticed that uh, President uh, Varela switched the uh, diplomatic relations from Taiwan to the People's Republic of China. And uh, what are your views regarding China's presence in, the, in Panama, particularly the Panama Canal and Central America in general? And why should the average person in Panama care about Chinese behavior in their country? Well, I, I think that uh, pursuing and making sure that the United States influence is preserved in Panama as a reliable partner based on the shared democratic values as well as the long track record of working on successful projects together is important. Uh, the influence of the PRC is being seen now more, uh, more fluidly, not only in Panama, but all over. The, the reason why Panamanians should care is because of the, as the PRC comes in and starts working on infrastructure projects, which will be used by all Panamanians, they need to take a look and be vigilant as to the quality of the construction and the quality of the projects and compare that to the quality of projects that are built with the United States. I, uh, I also think that, in general, the, um, if confirmed, I will keep a very close eye uh, as to whether the PRC is following through in, in all the promises they make. They seem to overpromise, but not necessarily to deliver right. on what they've promised. Well, thank you. I, I, I would agree with that also. The, the, the debt that is incurred and ultimately affects the people of, the, of, of Panama uh, Dr. Mora, I have lots of questions for you, but no time to ask them. So I would just say, would you agree that Russia should not become an observer again until they are out of Ukraine altogether? That, that, that is correct. Thank you, uh, Senator. And in fact, the resolution that was passed by 25 members is clear as to what are the conditions under which possibly they could come back. But it, it's unlikely and there is a broad coalition within the OAS to condemn. It says something about the hemisphere and about the number of states who have stood by the Ukrainian people uh, in their struggle. Thank you for continuing to uh, help them stand strong uh, with our ally in Ukraine. Ms. Kwan, we have 17 seconds. I had three <laughs> questions for you, but now I'll just ask one. 
uh, that I wasn't going to ask. Why Belize? <laughs> well, I'm honored to be nominated by President Biden to Belize. Uh, if confirmed, uh, I will ensure that I will continue to build better bilateral relations between the two countries and ensure that Belize continues to be a champion of democracy. And I know we only have 11 seconds, but border security, citizen security, ensuring the safety of American citizens and residents, uh, reinforce uh, and strengthen the rule of law, combat transnational criminal organization, and build commercial ties between the United States and seek opportunities for Americans to invest in Belize uh, that are eco-friendly, sustainable, and pro-growth to tax and investment laws in Belize. Great. And you didn't even mention you're interested in increasing cooperation uh, in the sports world. So uh, it sounds like you've done your homework, and uh, we appreciate your willingness to step up and serve in this capacity. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator. Senator Cardin. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Let me thank all of our nominees for their willingness to, to serve our country, in some cases to continue to serve our country. We appreciate that very, very much. We thank you for your, your families as well, as we know that this is going to be uh, a sacrifice um, that a family needs to make in regards to public service. So thank you all. Uh, Dr. Marr, I want to start, if I might, on the OAS. We had a conference call yesterday, Senator Wicker and I, uh, with parliamentarians in our hemisphere. The Congress passed in uh, a year, little over a year ago legislation to have our mission uh, institute a stronger parliamentary dimension within OAS, similar to what is in OSCE with the Parliamentary Assembly. Can you just tell me your views as to how you would attempt to implement the parliamentary, uh, parliamentary, a stronger parliamentary dimension within the OAS? So thank you, thank you, Senator, and, and I appreciate your, your interest and your leadership on this role. We had an opportunity to talk about it briefly. Um, I know that, that the OAS mission and your staff and others have been working very hard to launch a, a meeting uh, of legislators in, in, in the Western Hemisphere. I think, uh, Senator, this is critical at a time, as I mentioned in my opening statement, of democratic backsliding, of lack of trust in democratic institutions, and I think this level of cooperation, coordination, and dialogue among legislators across the hemisphere is, is, is coming at a critical time in the region when democratic governance is being threatened. So I applaud your efforts and your initiative on, on this. Uh, I will uh, make sure that if I'm confirmed that the mission continues to work with your office and the office of other senators to enhance and deepen those kinds of ties between legislator and legislatures throughout the hemisphere. Thank you. Squana, in Belize, there's uh, issues, one issue that really has me concerned on human rights, and that's trafficking. It's uh, a destination um, uh, country for trafficking, many because of the immigration issues. It's been on a tier two list for a long period of time. Can you tell me how you will prioritize uh, dealing with the trafficking challenges within that country? Thank, thank you, Senator that question. Um, the recent assessment shows that trafficking person that Belize has made incredible efforts, uh, but Belize needs to continue demonstrating that uh, they will make deeper efforts in this area. Uh, Belize has met only minimum standards, um, and Belize struggles with enforcement, investigation, and prosecution of crimes across the board. And if confirmed, I would support U.S. government's programs to improve the judicial system and help process and prosecute uh, crimes. 
I just point out, this is the third year that they've been on the tier two watch list. They may be making progress, but not fast enough. Uh, the victims here, it, it's, it, it is an extremely important priority for the Congress, the legislation that we passed, and we want it to be a high priority within our mission. Uh, the challenges in this country are re more regional than they are local, but here's one that's local that needs to be dealt with. Just point that out. Well, Appreciate you. you keeping us informed as to your strategies to uh, get uh, police off of the tier two watch list and uh, elevate their status. Uh, Spagley, uh, Ambassador Bagley, uh, I know you well. Uh, I have a great deal of respect for your service to our country. Uh, there was an oral history um, interview that was done in 1999 to raise certain questions. Uh, the language you used in regards to the Jewish community, Israel's influence in our election, and Jewish money have me concerned. I want to give you a chance to respond to either here, or if you would prefer to do it by writing, that's fine, but I want to make sure you have a chance to respond to that interview. Thank you, Senator. I appreciate that chance to respond, and I will uh, provide more details uh, as you wish. That was a... Um, it happened, I think, in 20, in, uh, 24, 25 years ago. It was a free-flowing discussion, and um, I regret that you would think that it was uh, were problems. I certainly didn't mean anything by it. Um, it was a poor choice of words, but uh, it was something that the um, interviewer had asked me, prompted by something about politics. Um, I can go in further detail, but I can tell you that I'm very sorry about that choice of words, and I, they, none of them reflect any of my thinking then or now. I think what I'll do, Mr. Chairman, I think I'll ask some specific questions for the record and give you a chance to respond. Uh, the choice of words were, were fit into the traditional tropes of anti-Semitism, and I I know you I know your background. Me. I know who you are, yes. uh, and it is just language that we would think that, that as a diplomat, you had then been ambassador to Portugal, that those your language would have been more guarded than that. Yes, I, I, I regret that, and uh, it was not a thoughtful analysis. And uh, I'm happy to respond in, in writing to any other questions. Thank you, Sam Hernandez. Senator Sheen. I'm, I'm very happy with, if you would like to go, Senator Menendez. Okay, I didn't want to, uh, uh, I know you've been waiting, so. And Mr. Chairman, uh, Ranking Member, thank you for holding this hearing. Uh, holding hearings on nominations is part of the uh, responsibilities we have, so we appreciate you doing it. Congratulations to all the nominees. Uh, Mr. Mora, what would you consider the biggest challenge we have in the Western Hemisphere today? Democratic erosion, democratic backsliding, uh, the lack of trust among citizens of the Americas, of their governments and of their institutions. That has a ripple effect, has second and third order effects on issues related to migration, uh, security, and so on and so forth. And I think the OAS, uh, uh, Chairman Menendez, is in a unique position uh, because of its core competencies to continue highlighting and underscoring this particular challenge to find mechanisms that exist uh, to address this issue in a collective manner. Mm -hmm. I agree with you. Uh, 
probably uh, more so than ever before. We have three now dictatorships in the Western Hemisphere where we only had one in Cuba, uh, Venezuela. Uh, we talk about the migration of Ukrainians. There are five million Venezuelans that have fleed Maduro and Venezuela. Uh, of course, we have a longstanding dictatorship of Cuba uh, where we see a new uh, uh, group of Cubans fleeing the island through Nicaragua uh, into attempting to come to the United States. And of course, uh, the newest uh, fermented uh, dictatorship in Nicaragua with Ortega. Uh, and that's without talking about other backsliding in other parts of the hemisphere. So your work at the OAS is going to be very important. Uh, Ambassador Bagley, in that regard, I want to uh, visit uh, some of the comments that you have made in the past, because you're going to a country uh, where democratic backsliding is a real concern as well, in Brazil, mm -hmm. uh, where we are concerned about its present leader uh, trying to uh, undermine the essence of the election process that is taking place. And it's one of those countries, along with Mexico, who are suggesting that we must insist on having dictatorships in the Western Hemisphere come to the summit of the Americas, uh, which I thought was a summit of democracies. I thought our alignment uh, was an alignment of democracy, human rights, and the rule of law. Uh, so, uh, so Brazil's an important place in this regard. Uh, in 1998, uh, you made a series of, of uh, remarks. Uh, you said there was, quote, no reason for Democrats to think that they could get the Cuban vote, but they still thought they could get money from them, and they did. It was also New Jersey where they now say that the 55 Cuban population there is even more radical against Castro than the ones in Miami. The real hardliners are in Newark, New Jersey, which has the second largest Cuban population in the United States. Again, it's not numbers, it's like the Jewish factor, it's money. So I guess I'm one of those hardliners radicals who live in New Jersey, although you're wrong about Newark, it happens to be Union City in Western New York, but uh, explain to me what you meant by that. Is it a suggestion that one group of Americans don't have the right to engage in the political process as others do? No, uh, Mr. Chairman, and I appreciate the opportunity to clarify that as I did with, um, um, with the question about the Jewish, um, it was the same interview. Uh, it was, again, a poor choice of words. I'm very sorry that we ever had the interview. It didn't really make sense to do. It was an oral history. But it certainly does not reflect my views on Jewish Americans or Cuban Americans or anyone else. I absolutely strongly support the right of Jewish Americans, Cuban Americans, Irish Americans, all Americans to be part of the political process, to be politically active, to raise money, give money uh, to those that uh, they support, um, as I have done myself. So it was, um, again, a poor choice of words. And I did say, they say, because I had heard this from someone in New Jersey. That was the only thing. I did not you know, have a you know, particular Trump view. President Trump is famous for saying, they say. <laughs> yeah, I don't right, know who the they are, not me. Uh, but they say. I know. Uh, and mean. so words, especially for those who are going to be ambassadors of the United States to uh, other countries, are incredibly important 
probably more significant than maybe in our individual daily lives, although I think they're always important. I don't know if Senator Cardin raised this, but you also said the Democrats always tend to go with the Jewish constituency on Israel and say stupid things. Uh, I'm a firm uh, supporter of the state of Israel. I think it's an incredibly important relationship we have, the one democracy in a sea of autocracy, uh, a major security ally of the United States, a significant trading partner of the United States. Uh, do you believe that uh, when Democrats uh, talk to Jewish constituency, they are saying stupid things? Not at all, Senator. Uh, again, it was a poor choice of words, but it, it does not reflect any of my thinking. Um, what I said, and the, it was really referring to uh, the discussion on whether Jerusalem should be you know, the capital of, of Israel, and that is something I worked on the, um, a number of, of uh, initiatives, and one was the Camp David Accords, we negotiated for Palestinian autonomy, and one of the kind of the holy grail was Jerusalem, and the idea was that the concept, which has gone through all administrations until um, President Trump's administration, that we keep um, Jerusalem as part of the overall negotiations over the two-state solution. So that's that. It was, a, as I say, it was a stupid thing to say. Mm -hmm. It was, um, and I regret those comments, and they don't, absolutely don't reflect my thinking on any of these uh, issues, or on uh, Jewish Americans or Cuban Americans. I've worked with both uh, politically. I've worked with, from the NDI, I've been on the board for over 30 years. We have done democracy and human rights and trainings in well, Cuba. Just as you, so, just as you had uh, at one period of time the right, uh, and, and as any citizen had, to lobby uh, to change our policy towards Cuba, Cuban Americans have the right to lobby and uh, exercise their view of what our policy should be as well. Absolutely. I have some other questions, but I, I, I want to let Senator Shaheen. Absolutely. Thank you, Senator. I, I totally agree with that. Thank you, Senator Menendez. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and congratulations to each of our nominees this morning. Thank you for your service to the country and for your willingness to continue to serve. Um, Ms. Kwan, I want to begin with you because Belize, Belize has a connection to New Hampshire. We have a former Ambassador to Belize, who is from New Hampshire, and so we've paid—I've paid a little more attention to issues there than I might otherwise have. And one of the things that I'm very concerned about, in addition to the trafficking in persons that Senator Cardin raised, is drug trafficking issues. In New Hampshire, we have a significant challenge with an opioid epidemic and with um, illicit drugs coming into the state of New Hampshire, and. Many of those are coming from um, through Belize, and I wonder if you can talk about how how we can better partner with Belize to stop the drug trafficking trade that is affecting the United States. Well, thank you so much for that question, Senator, and I look forward to working with you and your team. Uh, Porous borders, um, unmonitored borders, uh, make Belize very vulnerable to illicit activities. And to prevent Belize from being a haven of transnational criminal organizations and illicit activities, 
the INL, International Narcotics Law Enforcement, through the Central America Regional Security Initiative, uh, funds programs uh, to support Belize's defense force and its capacity to prevent, address, and combat drug trafficking uh, by transnational criminal organizations. Uh, to help strengthen the rule of law, uh, to enforce, investigate, and prosecute uh, crimes. Uh, Belize is a willing partner in countering narcotics, and if confirmed, I will work closely with the government of Belize to help deepen and expand this cooperation, and I look forward to working with you and your, your team. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, Ambassador Bagley, there have been several references to the backsliding that's happened in Brazil. That is of huge concern because, as everyone has pointed out, it's a very important country in Latin America. A lot of resources that are important to the world, the um, rainforests. And we've seen significant inroads on the part of Russia and China into Brazil and influencing Brazil and President Bolsonaro. Can you talk about how, as ambassador, you would work to um, mitigate the influence of China and Russia and encourage further moves towards democracy on the part of Brazil? Um, yes, I'm happy to, Senator. Thanks for the question. It is a, it is a concern. I would say that China is more of a concern because uh, they are the um, they they are the first the number one trading partner. With Brazil now, we're number two. Uh, they have been in Brazil for 20 years, but in 2012 is when they became the, the uh, major tra uh, trading partner. We were concerned about um, 5G rollout with Huawei, and um, we are really asking them, encouraging them to look very closely and to um, examine the implications of what uh, would happen if they ended up working with Huawei as a uh, as a supplier as, as a sole supplier? We are encouraging them to have multiple suppliers, and they have this uh, the Open RAN network that would uh, help with interoperability and multiple uh, partners. Uh, we have a number of programs, uh, public diplomacy programs at the embassy. We have several um, dialogues, of course, with the, with Brazil. We have over 20 dialogues with Brazil, uh, the most recent being the high-level dialogue uh, that happened on April 25th in Brasilia with uh, two of our undersecretaries and their um, uh, counterparts. And they, uh, they raised that issue, both of China, Russia to a lesser extent, because there's not a lot of commercial um, interest at this point. There's a fertilizer issue, but as you know, it, it has not been part of the U.S. sanctions yet, but there is a dependence on Russia, Russian and bio uh, fertilizers from Belarus and Russia, and that's something that uh, hopefully will be discussed, I'm sure will be discussed at the U.N. conference today, and something that uh, we will be working with uh, Brazil on as well. Well, thank you very much. When confirmed, I hope you will stay focused on that issue because I think there's a real concern about the potential for influence on the mm -hmm. part of China in particular. Mm -hmm. um, I'm out of time, but Dr. Mara, I, I do want to raise one issue that I think is really critical for the OAS because one of the challenges that we've seen in Latin America has been the role of women um, and the rights of women that um, 
I think we would all like to see are reaffirmed. And I think the OAS has an important role to play there. And I would hope that you would take a very strong stand in encouraging the OAS to, to, to take a very strong position to support the rights of women. Because one of the, I mean, there is a reason, again, I think it's important to remind people that we talk about an Office of Global Women's Issues and look at our foreign policy through a lens of how are women and girls treated because what we know is that societies that empower women, that have rights for women and girls, tend to be more stable societies. They are more democratic societies in general. So I would really urge you to um, make that a focus of your work there. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Senator, for that question. Yes, absolutely. And the OAS, I should say, Senator, has done some good work on women's empowerment through the Commission on Women. Uh, I, will, I will focus my attention on that commission and the work that it's doing. Uh, as I said, it, it's doing some good work, but uh, it, my sense is that it can do better. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Schatz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you all uh, for being here. Uh, uh, Ambassador uh, Bagley, uh, I want to talk to you about uh, deforestation. Um, the president signed at the last COP the Declaration on Forest and Land Use and set a goal for no global deforestation by the year 2030. That won't get done unless we solve commodity-driven deforestation. So the, just a quick primer. The Lacey Act covers forest products, right? We're not allowed to import stuff from the forest. Fine, that works reasonably well. I know uh, the ranking member has worked very hard on additional Lacey Act enforcement and all the rest of it. But the truth is that most of the deforestation happening is for commodities. Beef is not a forest product, therefore not covered. Soy is not a forest product, therefore not covered. And so I'd like your thoughts on how we deal with the primary driver, right, which is PRC demand for Brazilian forest product, United States demand for Brazilian excuse me, not forest product, but commodities that are, um, that are derived from uh, clear cutting or um, lighting the rainforest on fire. What do we do about this? Uh, thank you for the question, Senator. I, I think legislation is really important. Um, there was a, a big article in the Washington Post about exactly about this and kind of blaming the United States for eating so much beef that we would uh, you know, contribute to this problem. We certainly, as ambassador, I would certainly be working with the government of Brazil. We are now, uh, they have committed at COP26 to, the, to defore ending deforestation by 2025, which is a, you know, quite an ambitious goal and one that they are, have not really yet taken steps to fulfill. Uh, they've also uh, committed to ending uh, greenhouse gas emissions completely by 2050. Uh, so it's something that we have been working with them on, kind of encouraging them to take more steps. This would be part of it as well. They did sign a global methane pledge also, which goes to your, your question. So I do think that there is, uh, and, and a forest pledge, uh, Glasgow leaders um, uh, on forests that they signed at Glasgow. Uh, so. I think legislation would be really important, um, but it also, along with legislation, we have a responsibility as diplomats. I will have a responsibility, if confirmed, 
to work with the government to encourage them. We have a number of agencies um, that are involved. USAID is very involved with public-private partnerships, the business community, especially the United States business community is very uh, charged so, with this. So there are a lot of things that we could do. Couple of thoughts. First of all, I'm glad you mentioned legislation. I have legislation. Um, oh, good. Uh, um, it creates a framework for, it's called the Forest Act. It creates a framework for the federal government to stop commodity-driven uh, illegal deforestation uh, around the world. And so, yes, we need legislation, but we also need to, because commitments are commitments, and I'm almost worried. Look, 2050 is so far out into the future that nobody can be held accountable for any progress because 2050, you can always draw a line and say, well, you know, starting in the mid-2030s, we're going to make a ton of progress. 2025 is equally alarming because there's no way, there is no way they meet those goals. So um, we need to work with USAID to improve transparency, you know, reporting and enforcement mm -hmm. because the challenge, and I've interacted with the Brazilian government, um, uh, on this issue, and um, there are legitimate sort of supply chain transparency questions, and I think sometimes folks hide behind those legitimate questions to sort of throw their hands up and say, we think it's all fine, and I'd, mm -hmm. I'd just like you to, I, I don't want us, I don't want the legislative branch to punt this to the executive branch, and I don't want the executive branch to punt it back, uh, and we go back and forth, and then we, here we are, we've pledged to eliminate deforestation, but month by month, tick tock, and we're not making any progress. So I, I wanna hear a sense of urgency, not just around declarations and announceables, um, but on the mechanics of getting this to happen. Absolutely, Senator, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I know the uh, presidential special envoy, John Kerry, uh, is working very hard on this issue. I will be working with him as well, and I'm happy to work with you on all of these issues, but especially this, I think it's existential. It will be my uh, primary responsibility, I believe, as, uh, if I'm confirmed as ambassador. Thank you very much. Thank you, Senator Schatz. I'll now start with questions. Um, ambassador Bagley, we're friends, and I just wanna follow up on the, uh, the questions that Senator Menendez and Senator Cardin asked. The interview surprised me. I've known you for a while. And surprised you, me too. You, you treat people very fairly, and I've seen you treat people in all circumstances very fairly. And I sort of read it, and it reminded me of something that uh, uh, one of my campaign managers once told me, be more careful in a friendly interview than a hostile one. Because in a hostile one, you're prepped for hostile questions, but when you're in a setting that's a friendly setting, you sometimes go with the questioner's lead. And I gotta tell you, the, the transcript, whoever was questioning you was really asking you pretty outrageous questions. And if you read the whole transcript, sometimes you would sort of go along with the premise, but sometimes you would push back on the premise. The opening question, again, for an, for an interview with an ambassador, this was the question. I would think one of the big things of any campaign would be the Israeli influence. Mm. That was not your question, that's what you were asked, and that's almost insulting. I mean, Jewish Americans get yes. involved in campaigns like ever, all Americans do, but the Israeli government doesn't you know, push candidates around. I've, I've been on 10 ballots and I've never had the Israeli government push me on anything. But with a questioner who was probably a friendly interviewer starting the question that way, I can kind of see why you go down that path. You also pushed back. Here's another question that was outrageous. I would think raising money without trying to sound fascist almost, <laughs> but a lot of the free money floating around for good causes or political causes is Jewish money. 
Did you find that the candidates had to act in a certain way or you as a fundraiser had to say certain things? And here was your answer, not really. It was more of the effect of the primaries of the politics, not the money. So you were basically saying, no, Jewish Americans, like all Americans, have policy interests and you want to appeal to constituencies. It wasn't about money. It was about trying to appeal to constituencies based on issues that matter to them. That's an entirely appropriate answer. I will say the, the transcript kind of you know, goes a little bit all over the board, but you had a leading questioner. Um, I would have been objecting. It had been in court objecting, leading the witness, Your Honor. And sometimes you would go with the premise of the question. Sometimes you wouldn't. But I feel a high degree of confidence in in your fairness uh, in that interview from 24 years ago. I think if you put it in context, there's some troubling pieces of it. But I think I get what was going on. And you had a you, somebody in a friendly interview who was trying to lead you. Um, let me ask you this. I, I am puzzled by Bolsonaro's uh, attraction to Putin, the visit to Russia shortly before the Ukraine invasion, the fact that they're not willing to call it out for what it is. Uh, you know, I know that there's an election going on. He declared solidarity with Russia. Um, the, in the OAS, Brazil has repeatedly stand on votes regarding Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. Now, you've had to deliver both friendly messages, but also some maybe unfriendly messages when you were an ambassador before. How would you, should you be confirmed, how would you deal with Brazil, particularly on this issue of, you know, not being willing to call out Putin for what he is and what he's doing? Well, I would be very direct with them because I think a lot of his, uh, Bolsonaro's uh, statements belie what his diplomats, what his government is doing. Uh, Foreign Minister France has actually been very, very moderate. Um, uh, Treasury Secretary Minister is uh, Gedish, who is also very uh, moderate, and um, they have actually been very good in terms of the UN votes. Uh, they are, as you know, part of the Security Council now for the next two years as um, non-permanent members. They have voted twice uh, against the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, so, and once in the um, General Assembly. There was one vote that they abstained because they felt for procedural reasons that there should be more of an investigation. This is on the uh, uh, expelling uh, Russia from the UN Human Rights Council, so they abstained on that. But there are, you know, they are part of BRICS, and BRICS is not an easy <laughs> group right. to be part of at this point. And they're the only country that has supported uh, the United States position on on Russia and Ukraine. But I would continue to press them on that. Absolutely. Th thank you very much, um, Ambassador. Uh Aponte, tell me your assessment of this Alliance for Development in Democracy. The foreign ministers of the three nations, Panama, Costa Rica, Dominican Republic, met recently with Senators Rich, Menendez, Rubio, and me to talk about what they're trying to do, to kind of have a little bit more mass together than they might individually, to stand strong for democracy in a region where there is backsliding in democracy, assess the opportunities of the Alliance and how the U.S., could work together with the alliance to um, amplify their effect. Senator, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because um, as Senator Menendez alluded in his comments, there is a troika of Nicaragua and Cuba and Venezuela, but this is the good news. The troika of Costa Rica, Panama, and uh, Dominican Republic 
who have joined forces to address the issue of not only of democracy, but strengthening institutions in, and, and improving trade relations. And it's a step in the right direction. It's, a, it's very exciting and a great opportunity uh, for the United States to work with, uh, with them. Uh, and it also provides them a platform um, to talk to us uh, at, at another level. Th thank you very much for that. Um, Dr. Moore, I want to ask you this. Why are member states of the OAS, including uh, close U.S. partners, often so reluctant to take stronger stands against democratic backsliding, particularly with respect to Venezuela and, and Nicaragua? And what could you do, should you be confirmed, that might help inject some spine? Thank you for that question, um, Chairman. Um, there are several reasons or explanations for that. Um, but I, let me start by saying that that reality that you just explained is unfortunate because all members subscribed and signed on to the Inter-American right. Democratic Charter, right? And the charter enshrines the values, the principles, the practices of what free democratic societies should function uh, and how and why they should protect um, individuals or citizens' human rights. And I would argue that, that the citizens of Nicaragua, citizens of Venezuela, Cuba, deserve the right freedoms, um, dignity that every other citizen in the Americas. And so it is important, and if confirmed, I will insist that we go back and remember what we subscribe or what we signed up to in that democratic, we have to be consistent with the values and principles that are embodied in that document. And I think, frankly, uh, the OAS has done a good job with respect to the OAS, I'm sorry, to Nicaragua, uh, to Venezuela. There's a series of resolutions, important resolutions, that condemn and have taken very strong actions. Uh, and, and that, I think, the OAS needs to be applauded. Unfortunately, um, that's not true of Cuba. Um, I think that on the basis of often is heard of non-interference. You hear that a lot. And sovereignty, you hear that a lot. That's the explanation given, for example, which was very unfortunate, uh, Senator Kane, when after the July protest in Cuba, there was an opportunity for the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights to come before the Permanent Council to make its assessment of what had occurred on the island in light of the protest and the re brutal repression on the part of the dictatorship. Unfortunately, um, some member states said no. And, and that was very unfortunate because as I said, the Inter-American Democratic Charter just doesn't apply to Nicaragua and Venezuela and the rest. It applies to Cuba as well. And as the first article of the charter states, every citizen of the Americas has a right to live in democracy and to have their human rights respected and every government has an obligation to defend and promote democracy and human rights. And that applies to every state. Thank you, Dr. Moore. I'm gonna recognize Senator Haggerty for a first round of questions, and then we'll go to a second round of questions. And Ms. Kwan, don't worry, I have questions for you. So you're not getting off easy. Senator Haggerty. Um, Light is not functioning, is that, does that work now? Okay, thank you. Um, Ambassador Bagley, I'd like to start with you, if I might, uh, and particularly to talk with you about 
the 5G infrastructure of Brazil. Um, I have a feeling that you will feel the same way as me, but I want to ask you directly if you feel that the United States should press our allies to keep Huawei and other similarly situated national champion CCP affiliated companies out of our telecommunications infrastructure. Uh, I'd like to hear your thoughts. Thank you, Senator. We, we've already discussed that, and that's exactly, exactly what I said. Yeah. Uh, we worry about Huawei being the um, sole supplier. Um, we are really encouraging them to look with eyes open at the repercussions of that um, on privacy grounds, on grounds of national security, on grounds of debt sustainability, interoperability. So there are all those issues that would come into play if it were just Huawei. So we are, are really uh, working very hard with them. And if I am confirmed, I will work even harder to, to make sure that they um, have, if they have Huawei at all, that they have multiple suppliers. Yes, I, I, I would say this. During my time serving as ambassador mm -hmm. to Japan, I worked very closely with the government of Japan to ensure that their network became clean. In fact, we put in place something called a Clean Network Initiative. I've spoken with a number of your colleagues at the State Department about this. It's an initiative that Brazil, I think, has, has uh, actually supported the principles contained in the Clean Network Initiative. And you know, it talks about safe, transparent, and compatible um, in, environment in telecommunications and infrastructure that's compatible with our democratic values and our fundamental freedoms. And again, um, I think that uh, Huawei is, is, is taking, and when I say Huawei, I mean that ilk of company is taking a posture very different from that. Unfortunately, in March of this year, Huawei uh, has, has signed an agreement with TIM Brazil to develop a 5G city in Brazil. And it's deeply troubling, uh, particularly when we think about the broader national security implications that you and I have discussed. And uh, I look forward to working with you, and I look forward to your leadership, if you're confirmed, to continue to work hard to push back against this with the government of Brazil. Absolutely. Thank you, Senator. Definitely. Thank you very much. Um, next, if I might, um, Ambassador Aponte, I'd like to turn with you to talk about uh, some concerns I have, again, regarding China and their activity regarding the Panama Canal. Um, the Panama, Panama Canal is arguably one of the most important geostrategic locations for the United States. Uh, it annually registers nearly 14,000 transits. Uh, that's a value equal to 6% of all global trade. The United States remains the top user of the canal. In 2019, 66% of the cargo traffic transiting the canal either began or ended its journey at a U.S. port. Despite the importance of the Panama Canal to the United States national security and our economic security, the trends that I see in Panama are deeply concerning. Uh, in 2016, then-President Carlos Varela severed diplomatic ties with Taiwan to recognize China. Mm -hmm. Since then, Chinese companies have been heavily involved in infrastructure-related contracts both in and around the canal. They're involved in Panama's logistics, their electricity, construction sectors, all part of China's One Belt, One Road initiative. In 2020, the U.S. Southern Command expressed concern that China's investment in numerous deep water ports and infrastructure on both sides of the Panama Canal could enable the Chinese military to threaten sea lanes vital to global commerce and to the movement of U.S. forces. So, Ambassador Ponte, if you're confirmed to, to, to this new position, what's your assessment of the increasing Chinese involvement in the Panama Canal region? Thank you very much. I'm, I'm glad you brought up uh, the issue of the Chinese influence around the canal. Mm -hmm. um, since President Cortizo came to power in 2019, we have seen the cancellation 
and the withdrawal of some projects around the canal for the right reasons, meaning for because there was non-compliance mm. of, of the contracts. There's a, a port on the Atlantic side um, where the the contract is being is in the process of being withdrawn. It, we assume that it will eventually uh, come back on the market and then it will be open for all other uh, corporations uh, uh, to, to bid to bid on it. But that's just one of them. There's also on, on natural gas, there was a, a withdrawal of a contract to the Shanghai Electric Power, and it is now, it went to the AES. So we have seen some progress, and what is really exciting to see is that it's being done because there's no compliance. If you don't comply with the terms of the contract, you're out. Well, this is not surprising, and I'm sorry to cut you short, but it's not surprising. It's actually very typical of the way the CCP uh, behaves in this sort of environment, particularly these Belt and Road projects. They're predatory, uh, they're aggressive, and they're detrimental to our national security. So I would encourage you, uh, if you're confirmed, to develop a plan, a specific plan, of how you will work with the government, the Panama Canal, to help uh, offset and, um, and, and, and move, move our interests forward and help educate them on the challenges. Um, I've seen this happen in other countries. Uh, I worked very closely in my previous position to deal with China's predatory behavior in the Subic Bay, for example, in the Philippines when I was serving in that region. We need to be alert at every level, and I encourage you to, uh, to, to undertake this with utmost haste. Thank, Thank you. you, Senator. Thank you, Mr. Chair. For a second round of questions, Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I just want to uh, uh, conclude with Ambassador Bagley, and I, I uh, got a gist of your questions. And yes, a questioner can be leading, uh, but I assume as a U.S. ambassador, uh, we don't necessarily follow the leading questions. We answer them as in a conformance with U.S. policy. Would that be a fair statement, Ambassador? Uh, yes, Senator. It, was, it wasn't an interview per se. It was an oral history. It was actually a fr so-called friend of mine who asked me to do it, and it was one of these very uh, free-flowing conversations that were was I was supposed to approve later, as was the State Department. I don't really understand how it became in the public. But again, it was, uh, you know, my remarks were it was a poor choice of well, words, I, I, As I said to other nominees, well you're not the only person who's ever fallen in this category. Uh, what we say all of the time especially when we are not in the garish light of a confirmation hearing or actually in the midst of a position, is very important because what we say when we're not uh, under the light is often what we feel. And we all have the right to our personal feelings, but not if they're in conflict with U.S. policy. Uh, let me ask you one question about uh, President Bolsonaro's attempts to undermine the credibility of uh, Brazil's electoral system. If you are confirmed, what steps would you take to ensure support for the integrity and outcome of democratic elections in Brazil? Uh, thank you, Senator, for the question, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Bolsonaro has said a lot of things, but um, basically, they, Brazil has been a democracy. They have democratic institutions. They have a democratic electoral system. They have an independent judiciary, an independent legislature. They have freedom of speech and assembly. So they have all the democratic institutions. 
that they need in order to have a free and fair election. Um, I, as you, I think, know, I've been on the board of NDI for over 30 years, and I've done a lot of election monitoring. And I know uh, it's it's not going to be an easy time because of, of a lot of his comments. But uh, underlying all those comments is this the the, the real um, institutional background. And I think what we will continue to do is to show our confidence and our expectation that they will have a free and fair election. Mm -hmm. And we are doing that at, at every level. When a leader of a country tries to undermine, as we've experienced here in the United States, the validity and veracity of an elections, it undermines the democratic process in that country. So I, I yes. hope we will not be fearful to uh, uh, to challenge that uh, at the end of the day. Uh, Dr. Mora, uh, you and I have had a couple of conversations about a series of previous uh, comments. I want to just uh, focus on one. Um, during a 19, 2019 conference call with the Council on Foreign Relations, you discuss U.S. sanctions on Cuba and stated, quote, the United States continues with those sanctions, even though there's no evidence of effectiveness. It begs the question, why are we doing it? And there we get into domestic politics. So the question is, uh, clearly, um, there is a handful of peaceful diplomacy tools that we have as a nation the use of our aid and our trade to induce countries to act a certain way, international public opinion to the extent that that country or its leader is willing to be um, uh, moved by it, dictators generally don't care, uh, or the denial of aid, trade, or access to our financial system, which we generally consider sanctions. That's our arsenal of peaceful diplomacy tools. Uh, if you are to be confirmed to the OAS and it is the policy of the United States to enforce sanctions on Cuba or for that fact Venezuela or Nicaragua, which I, I hope the administration will do, uh, I will, uh, what, what will you, position will you take at the OAS among your colleagues from countries in the hemisphere in this regard? Thank you, Chairman Anderson, for the opportunity to address that, that question. Uh, first, I would say, and, and if confirmed, I want to be very clear, that I will be a strong, forceful advocate for the Biden administration's sanctions policy uh, in Cuba and elsewhere in the hemisphere. I will do so in public, in public forums, if confirmed, but also in private conversations um, with colleagues. As you know, and we have spoken about this, Chairman Endes, I have struggled all my life thinking about how best ways to bring democracy, dignity to the Cuban people after decades of a brutal dictatorship, repression, systemic abuse that was highlighted in July and November of last year. Um, this is not a professional or moral imperative for me. It is a personal one. Um, and, and I've struggled with this issue. But I am committed, and I'll reiterate this again if confirmed, uh, to Senator Kane's question, uh, it is important that the OAS focus more of its attention on Cuba. It has done a great job, I think, in Nicaragua, in Venezuela, but has fallen short in Cuba. We have a great partner, I think, in the Secretary General, who has been very supportive of these initiatives. But frankly, we need to do more, and it was uh, unfortunate that the Permanent Council refused to listen to the Inter-American Commission's assessment um, of, 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 the, of the repression in July of, of last year. Mm -hmm. 
And I think we need to do more, not just in the permanent council, uh, Chairman Menendez, but in informal meetings with like-minded countries, with the Secretary General to continue sh shining a light on the, on the tragedy in, in, in that island. Oh, yeah, thank you. Uh, Mr. Chairman, if I have your indulgence, uh, you know, uh, the Biden administration made decisions uh, a day or so ago, but it still retained the restricted list, which is the, uh, the main vehicle of sanctioning the regime. So uh, even it understands the consequence, especially uh, what was the uh, regime's answer to put forth a new penal code that includes the death penalty for acts of freedom of speech. The death penalty for acts of freedom of speech. Ms. Kwan, I know you've retreated some things in the past. You might want to think about that. Uh, finally, uh, Ambassador uh, Aponte, it is good to see you back before the committee. Uh, you did a fantastic job uh, for us in El Salvador uh, when you were our ambassador previously. I'm sure you'll do so again in Panama, different country, different set of issues. But uh, the Panamanians have joined the Costa Ricans and the Dominican Republic to launch an alliance for development mm -hmm. uh, in democracy, something that we applaud and embrace. Um, these kind of regional activities are rare and, and, in my view, worthy of U.S. attention and support. What steps will you take to strengthen the U.S. partnership with the Alliance for Democracy and Development in order to catalyze economic development and encourage alternatives to Chinese investments? Senator Haggerty was correctly pointing out the challenge that we have with China in the hemisphere in the region. Um, thank you very much for, for bringing the Alliance for the Development of Democracy Senator, it is uh, an exciting uh, development, uh, uh, and I think it affords us the opportunity to work together, especially in bringing projects uh, to the three countries that are big infrastructure projects that can be done in, in partnership with other countries. I, I think that we need to urge other countries to also be supportive. Uh, along with us in investing and in calling for investment in the three countries. In the end, what I think we are seeking is the stability of, of not only Panama, but of, of the members of the alliance. And the one place, one solid place that the, where we can demonstrate our support is precisely in, in, in those kinds of infrastructure, big infrastructure development projects. Thank you. Well, they also have migration questions. I'll submit something for the record in okay. there. Mr. Chairman, thank you. You know my passion for the Western Hemisphere um, is joined by your uh, as well, so I appreciate the courtesy. A absolutely. It took me eight years on the committee to finally get to be the chair and ranking of the subcommittee, so <laughs> patience rewards those who are willing to wait. Um, it, it's just comments for Ambassador Aponte and, and Dr. Moore, and then a question and topic for, for Ms. Kwan. Um, on, on the alliance, the senator, I think, said he would follow up with some written questions about migration, but it does strike me that that is an interesting topic for us to engage with the alliance on. Dominican Republic has significant immigration issues from Haiti. Panama has significant immigration issues through the Darien Gap from all over uh, South America. And then Costa Rica has these immigration issues because Nicaraguans fleeing the brutality there are maybe a little more likely to go south into Costa Rica than to transit north. And so I think there's, there's um, economic development opportunities, there's you know, standing strong for democracy and rule of law and human rights, but there's also the challenges that we're all facing 
um, on the migration front, and we may be able to share some best practices and, and learn from each other. Um, Dr. Moore, one of the things that I'm a little bit encouraged by in the hemisphere now is the emergence of some governments on the left who are willing to criticize abuses of the left. You know, challenges not just in the Americas, but around the world is that you have a charter that sets out these principles, but then if governments on the left abuse them, other governments on the left are silent. If governments on the right abuse them, governments on the right are silent. Um, although it's still nascent, the new governments in Honduras and Chile are governments from the left who have shown some willingness, some willingness to speak out against the Russian invasion and speak out against other abuses of left-leaning governments. And I would say that that's a really positive trend. It, again, it's, it, it's new in both of these governments, but hopefully that could continue. Uh, and I hope that the U.S., which in my view has often been more willing to speak out by, uh, against abuses by governments on the left and governments on the right, I hope we are even-handed in the way we stand for those principles in the Charter, regardless of you know, what is the flavor of the government that might be committing violations of the Charter. Ms. Guan, you mentioned in your opening statement the vaccine issue. And here, here's my observation from the trip that I took with Senator Portman and others a year ago. We, we went in July, and just coincidentally, it was right at the time that the U.S. was engaging in major deliveries of vaccines throughout the, throughout the uh, world. I give credit to President Biden by basically saying, look, the U.S. is going to be the most generous donor of vaccines. We did not go to Belize on that trip, but in the four nations that we went, this was what we heard. Um, you are giving us the best vaccines in the world. And if we say something nice about Taiwan or bad about Beijing, you don't suddenly cancel the contract. China or Russia are offering to sell us vaccines that are substandard. They're not as good as the American vaccines. And the, the timing of the delivery when we make a contract is up in the air. And if we say something nice about Taiwan, then the contract goes away. I think this vaccine diplomacy issue has been one of the best things the United States has done in the region and in the world mm -hmm. during this very difficult time. Uh, in the Americas, we often hear from heads of state, oh, you know, the Chinese are here. We'd rather deal with you, but you're not here. The Chinese are here, so we're going to deal with China. What we've done on the vaccine side has really earned us some goodwill, not just in dealing with COVID, but like the United States is back, really wants to be a partner. We see the value of the alliance. So we're having this battle right now about what will be in the COVID bill that we will likely do before Memorial Day. And one of the points of contention, I think we will get a bill done. One of the points of contention is whether there's gonna be a robust vaccine diplomacy piece of the bill. I, I think our vaccine diplomacy um, was one of the best things that we've done on the diplomatic front. And so I was pleased to hear you reference the vaccine delivery to Belize for a a nation of that population, that's a sizable amount of high quality vaccines. And I, you know, I would just like you to, if, if you could go further into that, you've done a lot of po public diplomacy. Vaccine diplomacy is that kind of public diplomacy that builds goodwill. What's your assessment of the effectiveness of what we've done in Belize around the vaccine? And, and you know, what might you suggest to us as we think about how to build on that? Thank you so much uh, for the opportunity to answer that question. Uh, in 2021, as I mentioned, uh, there was 228,150 uh, vaccines donated. Um, if confirmed, 
you know, as you mentioned, diplomacy would be a major priority for me, uh, as well as health security. Uh, 50% of the population in Belize is fully vaccinated. Um, in my opening remarks, I, I mentioned $300,000 in supplemental assistance, uh, $4 million in partnership with Baylor University, $2 million of which went uh, with CDC research with Baylor University. Uh, I believe that um, if confirmed, I will work very hard in finding opportunities for engagement. Uh, as I mentioned in my opening remarks, uh, educational, sporting exchanges, uh, I'll definitely lean on my experience and background and also recover um, from the pandemic, uh, understanding that governments all around the world has been hit severely by the pandemic and uh, understanding that Belize's main uh, industry is tourism. Uh, 40%, also 42% of imports to Belize comes from the United States. So uh, my, my priority is to make sure that we are able to work closely with the government of Belize and to build back better uh, and stronger um, from the pan pandemic. Well, I, I thank you for that. I'll, I'll just stay on my soapbox for a minute about vaccines. 8% of the vaccines, the, the this was the last measure I saw, it could have been slightly changed, but 8% of the vaccines that the U.S. delivered to other nations were delivered to Latin America, Central Mexico, Central South America, and the Caribbean. And, and that region has 8% of the world's population, but has had 30% of the world's deaths to COVID. I, I don't think we allocated the vaccines correctly. I think we, just as we do in our own country, we should be allocating vaccines to areas of great risk. There's also a geopolitical reality about trying to be maybe a little more forward-leaning on distributing vaccines in the Americas, and that's the migration and travel and family connections between, you know, U.S. citizens and those living in uh, Mexico, Central, South America, and the Caribbean are so close that, that leaning forward into delivery of vaccines in this region will have a disproportionately positive effect on health here at home. So, and this is something that the chairman and I are really strongly believers in. We wrote a letter early before the vaccines really started to roll out saying that there are a whole series of reasons why prioritization of vaccine delivery in the Americas makes a lot of sense for our own public health and also for the needs of, of that population. So the work's on our shoulders, I think, to try to come up with a COVID bill that will continue what has been a positive diplomatic coup for us, really, in terms of this vaccine delivery of high-quality vaccines. And I, I hope we'll do it, but I, I just wanted to take advantage of you're recognizing that as an important aspect of the relationship, particularly in the last year plus. Thank you all for your willingness to serve, for your service before you got to the committee, uh, for going through the hearing. Um, I'm going to ask that the hearing record remain open till 5 o'clock on Friday, two days from now, so that if members either who were here or who were not able to attend want to submit questions in writing, they can do that by 5 o'clock Friday, uh, May 20. Uh, if, those are if those questions are submitted, I would encourage all of you to provide answers promptly and thoroughly as quickly as you can, and that will expedite then the ability of the committee to take up your nominations. Uh, the hearing is adjourned.